I know you're having this debate back home. Should nuclear power be part of the plan? Not for Australia. I mean, I'm not here to tell other countries what to do, and nuclear plays a role in various countries' mix, but in Australia it never has, never has. And for Australia, you would be starting from worse than scratch because we don't have a nuclear industry. You know that United Arab Emirates have gone from zero nuclear energy to 25% of their electricity produced with zero carbon nuclear in less than 14 years. So why does Australia go on this road? It's very expensive. It's the most expensive form of energy. All our indications and evidence shows that. Power needs to be sustainable, reliable and affordable. And that's where we think new nuclear fits. It's not flexible. We just talked about the flexibility of a gas fire power station. A nuclear power station is not flexible. It's not peaking and firming. It's baseload. And we need peaking and firming. Uh, waste is an issue. I mean, uh, Stanford University shows that a, a small modular reactor could generate up to 30 times more waste, uh, more waste proportionately than a large nuclear reactor. Uh, and uh, we don't have, you know, what would we do with the nuclear waste in Australia? Uh, this is an inherently safer technology than what you're used to seeing in the utility sector, nuclear is based on light water reactors, and you're thinking about large one gigawatt units. Exactly. One module of the X-Energy XE100 is an 80 megawatt module that generates uh, enough power and steam for us. We'll put four of those small modules together at the site. When we have such abundant renewables, which we need to firm and we need to provide the storage, we need to buy the, provide the transmission, but even, Sri, when you take into account all those costs, Renewable is still cheaper than nuclear from our point of view. These advanced small modular reactors will be the future of safe, reliable, baseload power. One of the challenges that you can see happening in the country right now from California, even Texas, up and down the East Coast is we're starting to have times of day where you're starting to have power outages, and that's because we've taken out baseload power and replace it primarily with wind and solar. We're big advocates of wind and solar, and we use a lot of wind and solar, but we need 24-7 reliable power. Ultimately, the way forward is to double down on our investment in renewables and storage and transmission. It's a simple calculation on the grid. If you take 1,000 megawatts of coal-fired power off the grid, you can't just replace it with 1,000 megawatts of wind and solar. That 1,000 megawatts of wind and solar delivers about 240 megawatts reliably to the grid. It's the most expensive form of energy. All our indications and evidence shows that. That 1,000 megawatts of coal delivers 900 megawatts reliably to the grid. So if you were to replace that coal with advanced nuclear, much more reliable supply to the grid, or natural gas, much more reliable supply. And I think we have to realize that from an economic standpoint, people at home are not going to want to live through days where they have hours of power outages. Uh, people in industry are not going to move their factories back to a country that can't provide them 24-7 reliable power. Nuclear is the most expensive form of energy. We have a cost of living crisis, energy prices going through the roof, and what's their big bright idea? They say, let's... Let's have the most expensive form of energy we can possibly think of. New nuclear generation is going to be critical to building the clean grid of the future to support electrification and growth. But our government also recognizes how this work could build on the incredible economic opportunity that already exists here in Bruce County. Let's come up with the most expensive form of energy and let's put that in the system because that's going to make power prices cheaper. They want that debate? They really want to argue that? Bring it on. It's, a, it's a just a complete joke.
A new nuclear station could create thousands of new jobs and generate billions of dollars in economic activity across the province for decades to come while helping to reduce emissions and further Ontario's clean electricity advantage that we already enjoy. Nuclear, what we can learn from Hiroshima and the sequel, the and the sequel. The Nuclear, what we can learn from Fukushima, Mr Speaker. They're all-time classics from the honourable member opposite. Really the way forward is to double down on our investment in renewables and storage and transmission because not only is that good for emissions, it's also good for energy security. Hello and welcome to the Baseload Podcast. My name is Ben Beattie. The opening montage of this episode contrasts Australia's Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen with some people who actually make sense on nuclear power. I'll leave listeners to consider the obvious differences in maturity, knowledge and the ability to communicate between Mr Bowen and Ontario Energy Minister Todd Smith, Dow Chemical CEO Jim Fiddling and World Nuclear Association's Dr Summer Bilbao-Leon. We wrap this episode by speaking to Aidan Morrison about how and where the latest iteration of CSIRO's GenCost report glosses over the sunk costs that underpin its pro-renewables findings. Nuclear power is fast becoming a big talking point in Australia, with Peter Dutton's LNP finally succumbing to common sense and promising to repeal the legislation that has made nuclear power illegal in Australia for decades. It's about time, and the renewable lobby is clearly concerned, as well it should be. If you have nuclear power, there is no requirement for wind and solar. In fact, I'd argue that a small grid like Australia cannot support both. Nuclear and coal are baseload. Wind and solar are not. Wind and solar are not even firming. They're not even peaking. They're just dependent on the weather. Now consider baseload generation like coal and nuclear and with a bit of peaking from gas and hydro. This is like the wheels on a shopping trolley. Maintained well, they're fit for purpose, get the job done cheaply and without fuss, are completely predictable and reliable. Renewables, by contrast, are like the dodgy wheel on the shopping trolley. Sometimes it pulls in the right direction, but overall it makes a trolley worse. More cumbersome, more difficult to operate. Given a choice, we'd all choose the trolley with wheels at work. Speaking of things that don't work, here's Energy Minister Chris Bowen announcing a 5 gigawatt wind power zone off Newcastle. The area that I've declared today uh, will generate a little more than 5 gigawatts of power. Five gigawatts, for those of you who don't work in energy, is a lot of gigawatts. It sure is a lot of gigawatts. From the supporting material behind AMO's integrated system plan, this is the Oricon 2022 cost and technical parameter review, we can see that offshore wind is very expensive, coming in at over $5 billion for one gigawatt, plus around $200 million in annual operations and maintenance costs. Extrapolating all this to five gigawatts, and we get $25 billion in capital, plus a billion dollar operating cost per year. This doesn't include the 30 kilometres of undersea transmission line uh, to carry your lots of gigawatts, and this all adds up to Mr Bowen's cheaper renewables. And what does Mr Bowen expect to do with these lots of gigawatts once it gets to shore at the other end of the cable? You can't tie that straight into an existing substation and expect lots of gigawatts of electricity to be supplied from one physical location. Everyone can see there's going to be a lot more expense required to get those lots of gigawatts into the system. While we are on the ISP supporting material, the latest GenCost report from CSIRO was released in July. This document has been quoted by politicians and renewables lobbyists since its first iteration in 2018, and as a result we are seeing the total failure of electricity system policy to reduce costs and improve reliability. It's reducing emissions just fine, so yay, I guess. GenCost is a political document. 
Node Generation Developer is consulting CSIRO to make sure their next development is feasible economically. Node Retailer is waiving gen cost at a wholesaler during contract negotiations. The only purpose of gen cost is to support the ridiculous and dangerous notion that the Australian electricity system can function cheaply and reliably, and reliably with very high penetrations of renewables. Take figure 5-2 on page 56 and the surrounding paragraphs. According to the CSIRO, to get the NEM operating at 60% wind and solar, we'll add $70 a megawatt hour, which is $0.07 cents per kilowatt hour. So cheap, right? But this additional cost is on top of what the CSIRO refers to as business as usual. And what does business as usual mean here according to the CSIRO? Firstly, business as usual means all the pre-2030 ISP projects are complete. But Mr Bowen and his rewiring the nation policy has accelerated most ISP projects, so they are complete by 2030. Some of these projects have been accelerated by 20 years from the original. Next, business as usual includes Snowy 2, Curry Curry and Talawara B all complete and ready to run. We all know what's happening with Snowy 2. Business as usual also includes Tasmania's boondoggle Battery of the Nation, another Turnbull White Elephant. Lastly, in addition to all this massive expense, business as usual includes the New South Wales target of 2 gigawatts, 8-hour storage, planned under the New South Wales Electricity Infrastructure Roadmap. This is the Matt Keane concept. This is in addition to Snowy 2. So after all this, GenCost says 60% renewable energy will add a further $70 a megawatt hour. It's akin to thinking the, the iceberg floats on top of the ocean. Well, it doesn't. Most of it's underneath, and this is, this is what we're seeing with GenCost. And we'll dig into that a little bit with Aidan in the interview at the end of this episode. Would it help? A lot of people have suggested that maybe this should be a formalised target, or maybe we should actually formalise a mechanism in the same way we had the RET target to 2020. Um, I'm just wondering if you can, um, have you been yep. thinking about that, to e either of those options, making it a formal target, a legislated target, or creating a mechanism that actually requires the industry to get there? Well, it is a formal target. It's government policy. It's not legislated, but it's a formal government policy. Chris Bowen there interviewed on the Renew Economy podcast recently, and we'll come back to that soon. But I keep saying it. The renewable energy targets are so large and the timeframes are so short that everything has to be built. An example of this in action is New South Wales Energy Minister Penny Sharp, who was reported in Renew Economy as removing bottlenecks to wind and solar approvals after some whining, no doubt, from the Renewable Energy Lobby. Penny Sharp, in addition to being the Energy Minister, is also the Minister for Environment and Heritage. I can picture those decision-making processes now. And this gives us some clues to what will be going through Mr Bowen's mind and his advisors' minds. I think we'll soon see an announcement expanding the renewable energy target, as hinted at there by Giles Parkinson in the podcast. Recall the last iteration of the renewable energy target forced retailers to buy a proportion of their wholesale supply from wind and solar. The legislation ramped up the proportion required every year uh, until we eventually got to the target of 33,000 gigawatt hours. The RET is the main reason for the mess we are in right now. And this is likely the policy with the worst effect on the economy and cost of living ever. There is no way the huge... 82% renewables target can be met without being forced by government mandate. And we can see the renewables lobby laying the groundwork by socialising this idea through their channels. In addition to the recent podcast where Mr Bowen was put on the spot about 
uh, targets. In April 2023, we had the International Energy Agency, and I quote, Australia must support coordination for greater alignment of national, state and territory policies, incentives and investments to achieve the targets and standards. In May 2023, we had uh, Renew Comedy, Extend the RET, wind industry giants call for reboot of federal renewables incentives. June 2023, The Guardian's Adam Morton, The Guardian. Two steps could help address the problem. The first is to expand and extend the national renewable energy target. Hmm. It would be relatively uncomplicated to reset it to give the system the big push that it needs. Solar and wind can compete and will continue to be built without it, just not fast enough. Wishful thinking there from Adam Morton at The Guardian. Uh, and in July 2023, we have the uh, Garno. We've got the capital, the tech, the people. Now we need the policy environment. One missing bit is a general incentive, such as extending and strengthening the renewable energy target. We can get there. And to top it all off, the king of the renewable energy lobby, Kane Thornton, in uh, July 2023. No policy has delivered as much abatement, given as much certainty, and unlocked as much investment as the RET. Extending it beyond 2030 would be simple and fast, and the benefits to energy prices <clears throat> and the Australian economy will outweigh the costs associated with this extension. These are the actions and leadership we now need to turn ambition into reality and ensure we are set up to achieve 82% renewable energy by 2030. The Renewal Comedy podcast continued with the co-host David Leach, how do I say it, finding it difficult to process the uh, ambition without a legislated target. In terms of uh, wind and solar, we're relying on the um, renewable energy certificates, which of course have a, a life that ends in 2030 and haven't been extended and had a concept of 20% renewable energy when we're talking about 80%. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> I feel your pain, David. <laughs> I think there's little doubt that there are, there'll be a renewable energy target announcement by the end of the year. It's just, there's just no way of achieving it. And uh, on the transmission side, there's, there's the social licence, right? There's plenty of money around for transmission, I think, myself, but the social licence thing is a big deal. Leach is right here. Social licence is a big deal. Social licence is, of course, the acceptance by communities to be, uh, how would I say it, taken advantage of by the Teals and the, and the Greens and the inner city voters who want more wind and solar, but would never in their lives consider living under a power line or beside a wind farm. Peter Credlin's been talking to affected farmers on, on her show on Sky News. So we have a farm that sort of had irrigated river flats, then sort of rich, fertile cattle country in the middle, and then sort of higher native timber. There's so many things that we won't be able to do if these transmission lines go through. We won't be able to cultivate our irrigated land because any dust is deemed unacceptable in the area of the transmission lines. We can't fence near it and do controlled grazing with our cattle because of the risk of arcing and fire. Um, we do actually have an endangered koala population in our back hills in that timbered country, and that's not being considered. That seems to be acceptable to clear. Um, we've also got some big risks to our house as far as our ability to fight fires once these huge towers are in. So it virtually changes the whole way that we can produce our beef. 
Are there any other options apart from the industrialisation of farmland and native scrub, koala habitat? In Europe, we've got this policy that now that, um, you know, where the federal government, well, the European government, sorry, the EC, uh, can, can kind of require countries to um, accelerate approval for projects. I thought European countries had their own governments and it was more of a trading block, an economic block, not a draconian authoritarian rule from above, regardless of what the individual countries say or what their voters and citizens might say. But yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. David, let's, let's import those kind of rules from Europe. That'll be good for the country. That'll be good for the farmers and our native environment. Brilliant. Uh, Leach continues. Uh, whether it be transmission, I guess, or particularly in renewable energy zones for individual wind farms. But in Australia, the whole planning process still seems to be very bound up in the past and very state-oriented and, you know, doesn't seem to be much progress at getting through that, that quagmire. Here's an idea, Mr Leach. How about you come up with a good argument to convince people that... Uh the renewables rollout, the industrialisation of the countryside is not about getting agreement from people. It's about securing votes for the politicians in the inner city regions and it's about getting taxpayer money for the renewables companies, hardly any of which are Australian, um, try, and, try, and find a, try and find an annual report from a renewables company in Australia. Good luck. So I'll just ask one more question and then hand back to Giles. And just observing that, you know, um, I suppose not a lot has actually hit financial investment uh, closure this calendar year for various reasons. And to be honest, I hope it stays that way. But this is more support for the theory that pretty soon we're going to have a legislated target forcing retailers yet again to prop up the wind and solar industry. The interview spent a bit more time talking to Chris Bowen about a capacity mechanism, which is another market, which is supposedly for renewables, or they call it renewables, to sit around waiting to be asked to turn on, to be paid to do nothing most of the time. Now, I'm not sure how wind and solar can do that, uh, unless there's some magic button for the wind or the sun to turn on and turn off, but we'll leave that capacity mechanism chat there and... uh, Let's talk about Araring. Just some coal-fired power stations. Um, I guess the big one at the moment is Araring. It's the biggest coal generator mm. in the country, 2.8 gigawatts. Three years notice closed down in August 2025. Some pretty confusing messages coming out of the New South Wales um, government, both before and sort of since the election. Um, what's your reading of the situation there? Might we see an inevitable sort of, you know, keeping open of some units for another summer? Um, or Yeah. You know, uh, and and to what extent are you involved in that? So obviously uh, I'm aware of, you know, I'm, I'm involved in discussions with New South Wales. Nobody wants to see a coal-fired power station uh, remain open longer than it needs to. No, I couldn't resist the goat on that one. Clearly there are lots of people who would be quite happy for their main method of employment to remain open and employing them. Uh, there'd be companies reliant on that coal-fired power station for maintenance contracts uh, for servicing, for spares, I mean, good grief. Um, and I don't think anybody's talking about any um, delay of any, you know, of years. Um, I think it's appropriate for New South Wales to say to Origin, 
at this point and, you know, potentially Brookfield down the road. Um, you know, let's talk, let's just make sure that everything is in order uh, for that date. And if not, let's just keep a little bit of flexibility about that date. Um, but nobody has suggested to me that we need, you know, uh, a mechanism to keep a roaring open for anything other than or longer than, at you know, at most a relatively short period of time. And only then if it's necessary in terms of the grid. I suggest... Chris Bowen will not be the energy minister by the time Arara closes. So uh, I would just observe that with um, the way the uh, coal price is fixed in New South Wales, it effectively may, and where electricity prices, and this is an observation, uh, Arara is very profitable uh, at the moment on my numbers and I think other financial analyst numbers. And, and so the incentive for it to close, which was there when a couple of years ago, isn't there at the moment. That's that's an observation, rather than uh, saying something. And what would change that, in my opinion, is if there was more supply on the grid in New South Wales. But unfortunately, there's not going to be much more supply on the grid in New South Wales for some years, as far as I can see. <coughs> Renewable energy target. <coughs> I won't put you through any more of Chris Bowen and the and the painful interview. Uh, on Renew a Comedy podcast, but um, except for the final uh, speech, I guess you'd call it, from Chris Bowen, where he wraps up the interview and <clears throat> lays out his vision. Here it is. Uh, the funniest the funniest moment on the entire podcast came from uh, David Leach's comment at the end. Check it out. Um, yes, the challenge is big, getting that capital investment through, final investment decisions, social licence, ensuring stability of the grid, ensuring the lights stay on as we do all this ensuring that we keep our industries like steel and cement uh, and aluminium going as we do it is all a challenge. Yes. Yes, they are all challenges, Mr. Bowen. Well done. But it's a challenge we're up for and a challenge that we can and must overcome and win and seize this massive economic opportunity for our country. That is the task and that is the task I enjoy every minute of every day doing. It seems like it'll take uh, more than one term to do it. Aidan Morrison, welcome to the Baseload podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. Really great to be here. Now, we, uh, we came across each other on the, uh, the social media universe of, of Twitter, uh, which is a great place to have debates about energy, particularly. Before we get into it uh, and some of your, your good insights, do you want to give us a 30-second explanation of, of who you are and why, why you're interested in this subject? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, well, I'm not a I'm not a professional with any sort of industry uh, inside experience or anything like like yourself. Um, I'm a I'm a data scientist at the moment. I um I work writing computer code to sort of um, to trade um, to trade in futures and uh, and other assets. And um, so I don't have any special uh, technical insight um, other than a physics degree, which I suppose helps in sort of um, deciphering some of these things. So I'm a kind of an interested enthusiastic layperson um and people can hold that against me if they want but i hope that they do their best to um to yeah focus on the arguments and engage with them as opposed to kind of um you know just uh writing off people on credentials only um but yeah i do a physics degree i studied and was great i've always been a bit of a fan of um nuclear power since i studied nuclear physics so i found that it was a really compelling thing all the uh, all the solutions to make the problems which it has um well managed just seem extremely elegant extremely satisfying and I think when you when you sort of engage with those um, from a physics perspective, um, yeah, it's easy to get it's easy to get quite quite excited by. It. Um, uh, but yeah, so what I follow I follow things on Twitter a little bit. I'm interested in economics. I'm interested in um, in energy. I'm interested in physical systems. Um, 
I've interested in military technology. I have a little um, nascent fledgling um, YouTube channel called Miltech and Tech that I'm working on getting some more videos out for. Um, but yeah, that's me. I just sort of stumbled across this and threw my two cents in. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I think being uh, with your data science background, that gives you um, maybe an appreciation for some of the numbers and the stats and obviously uh, not scared of a graph or two, I think. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think I've got two things that um, sort of make me, I suppose, just a little more bold to um, to to see to call a spade a spade, uh, and that is, yeah, a physics degree. There's there's no graphs, there's no maths, there's no there's not much in technical papers that I'm not going to be afraid to actually look at and read and try to wrap my head around. And as well, like you know, oh, look at the data, look at the data. Well, I can sometimes. I'm not afraid of opening a spreadsheet and uh, doing some data visualizations, running a model, um, seeing what actually is required to get the results people are. Uh, are claiming they can get um so yeah it's it's great it's uh, i feel like i've been well positioned with the technical skills but i have I have no particular credentials um or, or sort of or dog in the race yet so to speak yeah well i'm, I'm looking forward to because your your insights were quite balanced and, and sensible i think um your you attracted the attention of some of the more well-known energy system debaters around the track do you want to give us a, a little a couple of thoughts about that process and how you've seen that unfold um, yeah, look, I, to be honest, I, I barely even know who the best, I know a couple of the energy debaters, but not a lot of them. And I feel like a lot of other people maybe are better known to you than they are to me. Um, so, uh, it, I'll tell you how it sort of, how it started. I had a little minor, like a, a very obscure energy debate a week or a few weeks ago. I think it was actually maybe even before the latest gen cost got released, which was not that long ago. Um, and I was just discussing with someone about, I, I made the point that as we increase the amount of renewables in the grid, um, the supporting infrastructure has to increase steeply. Like you have to build more the further you go in um, and uh, all the requirements for the infrastructure increase the higher you want to go as far as renewable share goes. That's kind of stated in the obvious, right? It's it's It should be the baseline. It should be. I think that should be beyond refute. Still, a few people still try to kind of wiggle about that, but the, but the broad principle that, it goes up. Um, the gradient, very interesting question, right? Exactly how steep is the gradient and exactly how much infrastructure do you integrate under that curve? That is exactly the question that's in that's in focus right now. But the idea that you need more and more the deeper you go um, for these intermittent sources, I feel like we sh that should be reasonably settled. Like, you know, every new, every new asset, one of the assets, either storage, transmission or generation has more spillage or yes, less utilization as you try to get these sort of intermittent sources to be more and more matched totally uncorrelated and you were what surprised at some of the responses yeah i i made the point and then i because i suggested someone had failed to take that into account and and i got this response back which was really funny in hindsight and it was sort of the effect of oh nobody's saying that we totally understand that we're not that silly mate and they quoted this gen cost crap they threw this graph on the page and i hadn't seen it before and i looked at it and i and it has these kind of four boxed highlighted kind of we're integrating renewables at 60, 70, 80, 90 percent. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. These can't these can't possibly include the serious actual integration costs. And I wrote that back in a tweet and I said, look, that's rubbish. That's just, you know, that's, that's that can't include all the costs. That is not serious. How dare you as a as a as a lay person without years of expertise and analysis point out that this is going to cost a lot more. <laughs> Yeah, well, but but they had the comeback. Their comeback was this gen cost graph. And I was like, wow, I was surprised. I hadn't looked at it. I hadn't really focused on like on gen cost. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an insider to this. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, you know, it didn't loom large in my literature search yet. Um, and then I looked at it and I realized, oh, this is this is a this is, this is an important piece. 
and I thought that is a surprising result, that it is just a small premium and the premium doesn't change really very much from 60, 70, 80, 90%. I thought that, that, doesn't, that doesn't pass the sniff test. That's wrong. And so anyway, I think it took me a day or sometime later that night, I got around to it. I said, oh, let's open this report. Let's look at how they got that. What's actually in their method. And then I discovered this thing in, uh, in yeah, page 50, like banging the guts of the report, like a pretty meaty 100-page report. It's like around page 50 when they're explaining this, um, how they did this integration cost. Oh, actually, I did miss a step. First, I, I said, oh, that can't include it all. And they said, oh, yes, it does. Read the fine print below the graph. The fine print, like just below the graph, and says it includes integration costs. And I wrote back and said, oh, I'm sorry. I take it back. Um, one of my first, one of my only kind of big walkbacks in Twitter and said, oh, look, I'm sorry. I didn't read it properly. You're right. They do claim that. And then I went later overnight to look at the details. The details said, yeah, that um, they have this business as usual case that assumes we have to build everything we were planning on building to support renewables up to uh, 2030. Um, and they list the things. They list Snowy Hydro. They list like, you know, various transmission projects that are already in the ISP flagged out to around 2030 as being required. Like, you know, they might not, they might not get them built by that time, but the things that were required, they said they would um, just include as a business as usual. Um, and, uh, and then I noticed a little bit later that there was actually an appendix. Exactly the, exactly the question that I was kind of like wanting to raise is that, the infrastructure you're building up to 2030, you're building that with exactly in mind, with modelled in mind, what you're going to need to connect to it to make the business case works for the next few decades. It's long-term infrastructure. Um, so how do you divorce that cost? How do you make that business as usual when actually you're building it already for what's coming next? Um, and I noticed, though, that there was an appendix. Someone had already raised that, that, um, that exact uh, issue and put a submission into, I think, one of the processes, and and um, and CSIRO had responded in the appendix, like several pages worth, and this was great. And this is what's new between in the last report versus the previous one. All the other previous reports, I think, have also baked in this business as usual that basically presupposes we have to build all the supporting infrastructure first. So, Aidan, don't don't tell me you're one of these people who reads something, thinks about it for a little while. And then goes and and checks checks the assumptions that, that build that 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 in, that information, and then you go back and look at how how they even got to those assumptions. You're not one of those people, are you? No, gee, those are awful. <laughs> They're really hard to play with, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hate those guys. Yeah. yeah, I hate those guys. Gee, um, yeah. So that's what I did anyway. And and the and the um the appendix trying to defend this use of the um the business as usual sunk cost was just like it it tried to explain and made it perfectly clear that that's what they were trying to do there wasn't some weird typo where the kind of you know the business like they said no it's a sunk cost like you know and um and and it just and that's why that's why i opened up on twitter and i didn't hold back because like there is there is zero chance now that this was sort of some kind of like weird misunderstanding they had someone push back and they wrote an appendix and they said Oh no, we definitely have to do that. We just just need to account for the extra bits that happen after that point because we've you know they, they defended, which is astounding, right? Maybe you can tell me because you seem to have gone through it in a lot more detail, and I have and the latest one anyway. I've been through a few of the past ones. Did they did they acknowledge all those costs um, at all? I mean, they listed them out, but did they actually show how much all that's going to cost? Uh, no, like, and this is, this is where I think that this is where I, so we're missing to get, to get to even, so I think the, that chart you're talking about in the, in the 50 
rat page ranges says it needs $70 a megawatt hour to get from 50% to 60% variable renewable energy VRE. Yeah. So to be clear, the, the, the chart that I'm talking about is at the front. That's at the, that chart is in the, um, in the, uh, is, is near the executive summary. It's up very high. Um, the, uh, the first explanation is in the middle. There's no charts there. I think it's just paragraphs of text around page 54 or so um, of, of what supports the chart. The appendix is down the bottom, page 90 something, um, that defends that method from a critique. Um, but, but so the question that you're raising is, did they account for it at all? And how is that, is, how is that accounted for? Um, I think it's crystal clear from their statement about the business as usual that that has been put into business as usual and is not incorporated in their integration costs. The trend... The, the bits of transmission and storage, and they do include some, some does not include these big mega projects infrastructure that have to come pre-2030. I think that's crystal clear. I think that's beyond dispute. I've heard a few people trying to raise little questions about it on Twitter. I think if that's if that's what the defense, gee, bring it on, because it is literally like exactly against what I think are the clearest words. And this might be a controversial opinion, but I think uh, one of the reasons for gen cost is to make, is to be a buttress to support the idea of the the transition being imminently achievable and relatively easy and not going to cost all that much more. So I think uh, when you look at the purpose of gen cost existing, so a retailer is not going to go to look up gen cost and use that to negotiate with their wholesale prices, right? They're not going to use that and go, oh, look, CSIRO said I shouldn't be paying 80 bucks a megawatt hour. You, you, I want to pay 60. Um, and, and a generator developer is not going to pick up gen cost and go, Hang on, hang on, Siemens. I should be able to be. I should be paying like forty bucks a megawatt hour for this, you know, wind turbine. But you know, you want to charge me eighty. This is that's that's a scenario that's not going to happen. The only purpose for this document existing is as a as an input into these other documents. And so, if you if you think of it from that perspective, and if it's so, if it's got these major flaws in it, well, that's a problem, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it is a huge. Yeah, it's a huge problem because I mean the the the, the I think the 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 way that gen cost is used. You're absolutely right. The, I mean the it's not it's not used by industry. They can't change what their vendor charges from a little from a specific input. You're exactly right. Like they are the ones that are the authorities in that. Like you know how much does how much does it cost Siemens to build a wind farm? How much does it cost someone else to dig up lithium and make a battery? What does it cost to stand up a pole? What do you pay? Like all those things are hard facts that you can't really like people encounter them when they're actually doing that stuff. It's not modeling, right? Like that's they're, they're very hard inputs, right? All this modeling around gen cost, the purpose of that is to inform, I think, the policy making and the political decisions about what we invest in today and what choices we make, and trying to inform um, the path we go down. Because it's true that like if you go far enough down one path, it might be quite expensive to change. And you have to think very, very clearly about what the costs are to get towards the end of the path um, uh, before you before you pick the path. So there, there is a very good and valid purpose for, for what GenCost is attempting to do or claiming to do. But it's disastrous that they have got it so badly wrong, right? Like, you know, um, and and or they have clearly not got it right and maybe i'll just come back to your previous question which i think i wasn't quite finished answering there in terms of what what csiro has done with these previous costs in their model to be honest it's not clear um they have not included them they've not done the right thing that follows through the method that everyone would expect them to use that much is clear exactly what did they do to be honest i, I 
it's it's to me it's not perfectly clear and it should be perfectly clear and so i don't want to try to i have resisted all attempts in my sort of you know um debates on twitter to say oh the the mistake they made add this much back in the price has changed that much i don't know because their whole model like and what they've done there to me is totally opaque and it could be a complete and utter mess and so i don't think i can fix it by just adding in one thing i mean maybe it's maybe it's right i i, don't, I can't see exactly other ways in which it's clearly wrong um, I've got a few ideas actually, but but they need to come back and produce a credible and transparent model that does incorporate, you know, all the costs we actually incur for those later stages of renewables, um, not writing off sun cost. And there could be other problems still, maybe, but you can start with this, that they have definitely not included the cost of building the infrastructure up to 2030 um, in that later integration cost. And it's and it's even tougher, it's even tougher to justify when you look uh, all around the world, there's any number of uh, LCOE uh, calculations and, and people and organizations putting these out there. Uh, and, and, and as soon as they start calling things integrated costs, you're, you're looking at factors of five and 10 times more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and gen cost doesn't, doesn't sort of gen cost is an outlier in that sense. I think if someone did a, what they call a meta study, they they'd show well you have to discount the lowest and the highest and then you get somewhere the truth in the middle of all these modeling studies yeah. and gen cost to be out the door straight away out the door right that's exactly right so so the thing that i think that everyone thinks gen cost is doing is is i think what you would call a levelized full system cost of energy um because the levelized cost of energy just incorporates um the life cycle and financing and capacity factors that sort of stuff right so but it, but it, because its base case has so much built into it, that's that's the iceberg. They're only doing the uh, the small patch on top, right? Well, that's 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 exactly right. So, uh, but I think that defenders of gen cost, and I want to take them seriously, and um, uh, and we, and I think we always should, right? They would say that gen cost has not strictly claimed to do the levelized full system cost uh, of energy. And there's a reply on Twitter that is arguing, um, and I think makes a valid nerdy intellectual distinction between average and marginal costs but they are they're not clear about that distinction in gen cost itself they, they call it integrated integrated or levelized or firming or whatever you want to call it yeah that's exactly that's exactly right well let i mean they if even if they were technically clear on page 50 or something like that the way that everyone has interpreted what it says including the politicians including aemo including policymakers, including every damn newspaper is is the way that suggests oh electricity prices will get lower in the end right we're definitely going on the right path the end will end up like you know at a cheaper place right and so and that is what this report this method does not support right so if you think about it if you're going up a path right and you're trying to figure out how high um do we uh how high is the total costs when we're sort of walking up this path when we get there right what happens in the building of infrastructure um, for, for renewables is that if you were to do some magical scenario where you could somehow like grow wires a little bit thicker year after year and you could like have turbine planes, blades that just got a little bit wider and the tunnels that, you know, had been, if everything could be, you know, scaled up a little bit inch by inch every year just by sort of pumping some more dollars into a bank account, the cost curve for renewables would just go up smoothly but sharply. It'd be some sort of, you know, some sort of ski jump ramp that goes up after the point where you reach roughly the capacity factor, right? But you can't grow cables, you know, a, a few sort of, you know, 
meters wider. You can't like, you know, have turbines and tunnels suddenly just sort of, you know, expand the diameter slightly every year. You have to do things, things up front in this infrastructure. You have to build them once up front. And so the true path in terms of the expenditure profile for a heavy renewable system, actually, I think, has quite a steep ramp, right? You know, we've had the easy bit. The easy bit is when you sort of, you know, you've got enough redundancy in the existing system. You've got like all the, you can just scale down another gas plant, you can scale down a coal plant. That's the easy bit where you just turn something else down and you accept whatever the windows produce whenever they produce it. And you don't have to send it very far. You don't have to store it very much, right? That's the easy bit. That's a smooth incline. A, a steep, your description of a steep uh, increase is, is accurate, but uh, also slightly misleading because I think if you look at the expenditure on, decade scales if you look at on decade scales it's it's just a vertical step change uh and it and it's massive so these transmission lines if they all get built they they are going to be there for decades they are never going to get turned off you're right so the curve curve actually we start with this sort of relatively gentle slope but when we hit this wall like it's an absolute it's a huge step up right and because you've got to build these things up front right you can't you know the cables don't just grow slowly thicker the tunnels don't you know just grow slowly wider you have to you have to do it up front. Right? So, so you hit this wall of a huge infrastructure spend to build all the system that you can plug your things into later, right? And so, so what the and so in a technical sense, um, GenCost could be evaluating the marginal increase in, in integrating, which means basically they have kind of they've just done a leapfrog over this massive wall to when we built the system, and then they're just pricing the extra relatively smooth increase of the extra connection costs. I, I have an analogy to to describe what you're what you're talking about, and I think a way to do it is. If you think of um, the development of a car, so the CSIRO's gen cost, the way they're describing the the cost of this integrated uh, electricity generation system with, with a high percentage of renewables is like buying a like a twenty thirty Hyundai Tucson without without accounting for twenty years of development to get there, right? Or buying a um a twenty a twenty twenty three uh, Model Three without acknowledging the effort that Tesla has gone to to get to that point in the first place. It's it's an incremental change. And that incremental change is seven cents a kilowatt hour, which is like 25% more than we are now. Only 25% more exactly. Right. So the um I think there are better analogies too, right? The, the one that my favorite on uh my favorite that came up on Twitter um was really, really dry and cutting. He just said, I find housing costs very low, assuming you've already bought a house. Like, you know. <laughs> Which is like, which is kind of like that's that's what it is. It's kind of like the big upfront cost, and and you know, and people expanded on that. And said, oh, maybe maybe you inherit it. There's no mortgage, and maybe you just need to renovate a few bedrooms as you go, right? But the, that's right. But like the big necessary step has already been taken, and you're only passing small incremental things. The other one that got flushed out, which I love, um, a, a mate of mine said, and I think he's concerned about climate, and fair enough. So am I. He said, we're getting to the stage where we might need a moonshot to uh, to um, to to sort of arrest climate change and uh, and solve it. And, and 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 my reply and you know um and he mentioned the business usual case and I, and I said to him look uh CSIRO's gen cost starts with a business case where we're already halfway to the moon and doesn't include the cost of building the rocket and doing the launch um that's that's what it is so we're just pricing the kind of like the little booster things to land on the moon right like we've we've actually taken the really big hard upfront step and now there's a little bit of small stuff uh, left on after that we've talked about gen cost and we're both uh quite critical of it um, obviously there's some people who who think it's worthwhile and whether it is or not, I don't know. And the only people who sort of use it are the, the politicians and the media um, and, and the other bureaucracies as well, of course, because they all need something to support uh, what I would uh, uh, 
maybe maybe unfairly call a fantasy <laughs> is is where I'm coming from. I think this uh, net zero uh, thing is just very very dangerous for us. Um, more dangerous than climate change, but we don't need to talk about that. What I wanted to ask about is, do you think it's looking at where we've come from uh, and this sort of intermediate stage we are now, which is a kind of a, a pivotal point in our energy history, or I guess where even, and I think you put something up on Twitter recently, which said um, the last head of AMO or or one of the energy bureaucracies said that this is like a, like a radical change of our systems. Is is are these ideas even possible? As in to build to build the uh, to build to build the full ninety percent system, is it possible to get there? Yeah, I mean, is it given? I think from an engineering perspective, given enough time and money, you can build pretty much anything, right? So I I think if 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 we really wanted to, taking your moonshot analogy, I think we could put someone on Mars in a couple of years. We could do that. The the technology exists. I mean. He wouldn't live for long when he got there and he he wouldn't be able to get back. Right. But if your mission was to get to Mars, put a person on Mars, I think there's enough money uh, and, and you you could actually make it happen. Right. I think that that's realistic. Yeah. Humans are smart resources. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not a great solution. There's no real good outcome out of that. So I think my analogy for the whole, this net zero, starting with our high renewables energy targets um, is like going to Mars. Uh, it, it it sounds great, but there's no real value in it. And it costs a shitload of money. Um, we've got pushback from farmers uh, and industry about transmission lines. We've got pushback on uh, using uh, land for wind and solar farms. Um, we've got pushback from, you know, commentators like me who are attacking the, um, the underlying uh, assumptions that uh, all this is based on. Um, when does... Is there a reality in the future where we could be? Uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. I don't think there's actually a reality where this is going to happen. I think we're going to spend a lot of money and fail. I look. I think I agree with your conclusion, but it's worthwhile. Um, it's worthwhile unpacking why, um, because I am actually with you. I don't think it's technically impossible to build a ninety percent um, uh, a ninety percent VRE grid. Um, I think that I'm 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 a sort of you know technology optimist. Um, well, no, actually, I'm very careful about it. There's a lot of technologies that I don't think um, are worthwhile, and a lot of them should be shut down. Um, but but overall, I'm a strong believer in humans' capacity to get things done. I believe in science and progress and engineering and the overall surplus of human capacity to produce things that we devote a lot of resources to. Right? Like we can do a lot. I don't I don't believe that we're you know um, running out of stuff, um, and we're not running out of human ability to to kind of keep making progress on. On various things, so I, I believe it's possible, right? Like, to, I mean, but it, but I suppose the question that I think I want everyone to ask is kind of like, how good does that solution look compared to an alternative solution, right? And and the solution for the VRE ninety percent grid is an enormous, enormous, bulky system, right? Like, you know, the solutions to all the problems um, that VREs have are, are are solved by brute force, if you like. They're kind of like we need to build lots of the stuff, right? And we need to put them in lots and lots of different places. And we need to link them together with lots and lots of different wires, right? There's, there's, there's nothing particularly elegant um, about that system. And, and the thing about that system is that it's collecting energy in the dribs and drabs that the weather kind of produces for us um, over a huge, huge land area. 
And the reason, the reason why I'm not optimistic that we will get there um, is because, not because we can't do the technology. I think we could figure out the spinning condensers and the right inverters and whatever else. We could, we could put enough other bits in to make the whole system kind of work. But it's spread out over so much land and every one of those projects is a little bit different. And every one of those requires that you interact with all these different landowners all the way. And I think that is fundamentally going to be probably the biggest um, hard barrier, assuming assuming that cost is no barrier, right? Like, you know, as in why will it fail if you've decided we're going to spend any money to do this, any money? And I think it will probably slow down and fail because um, you have to get permission from a gazillion people all the time to put these huge, massive things. And I and I think that will get harder and harder and harder. Like, I... I I mean, I don't, I don't mind windmills. I quite like the look of a windmill, um, and I don't mind a little wind farm. Like I said, I'm driving, you know, onto Canberra. That's that's really nice. But, but the scale of the windmills that you have to build, um, and the scale of solar is enormous to get to ninety. It's just so huge. That's an important point, right? Like, not many people are acknowledging uh, the scale of what is required by using intermittent, widely dispersed, actually small small capacity generators to actually meet the demand where our, our society has evolved along with the development of reliable electricity. If we didn't have reliable electricity, we couldn't do what we do now. It wouldn't happen. That's, that's absolutely true. So we shouldn't undo having reliable electricity. I think it's possible in an engineering sense to produce reliable electricity from a VRE, possible with, with any money. Um, but it, 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 I think it will grind to a halt because like people will realize, and this is what I'm, you know, this is sort of my opinion is I don't, I don't mind wind farm. I don't mind a solar panel. Um, but you need so, so many of them, right? Like I only have to like the landscape without a wind farm, a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit more that the proposition of it covering this much landscape with wind farms will start to grind my gears. Right. Like, and I think that's what we're slowly going to realize when we try to roll out more and more and more and more, because it will become people realize the scale and it will become, you know, what is not offensive at a little scale will start to become offensive at a massive scale. And I think there's a little bit of pushback in the communities that are facing. Part of that is also the the cost. So there's the physical amenity of it and just understanding the enormous scale. Uh, the other one is the, the, the cost increases, which gen cost glosses over. Like it, I kind of, I think it actually, it's not telling untruths, but it's certainly not being clear in its message, uh, like like we've discussed already, um, and that allows the bureaucracies and and the um, the willing politicians, I guess you'd call it, to to um, to push that agenda. So I think the cost is actually going to go up quite a lot, um, even in the short term, uh, and as as well as other on top of other pressures, like for example, safeguard mechanism on 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 generators and and, uh, and bigger heavy industry i think there's a lot of risk there and my my personal opinion i've got a piece coming in the spectator tomorrow about this i think chris bowen the only way he can make traction is to expand the renewable energy target i think that has to that that's that's the only way we got to this point um when you said brute force before i almost interrupted but i like the way you're going so uh but i'm i remember that because that speaks to me that there's no market force which can make this happen it has to be government and it has to be dictated uh, and then we come to your your um observation that people 
own their land and might want to make their own decisions about what's installed on it or what goes across it and maybe not live next to a power line when they haven't lived next to a power line ever in their life. Uh, and these are not small power lines. These are 500 kV. So they're taller. The easements are wider. Um, you know, the buzzing and humming is louder and they're actually more expensive to build and operate as well. So we're not talking about small things here. And I think all that, all that cost is going to go up. So at some point, uh, the market's not doing it. The government will have to do it. The renewable energy target. Do you think there's any, do you think there's any possibility that'll happen? Uh, look, I think it's likely. Yeah, I, I probably do. I don't, I don't have strong opinions on exactly what mechanism, um, the government will use and maybe you're a better place there. So it could be the renewable renewable energy target um i have but i think that the how, how would you do it if you're in a if you're in a position and you needed to get from 30 percent renewables to 80 percent renewables oh, oh i think there's only two logical ways of doing that um uh and, and this is a this is a massive bite and i'm fine we've got seven minutes left but um i actually i i can't see a logical market force that would do this efficiently right i can't I, because because what we have happen when renewables they can't decorrelate their supply right they can't say oh you're on I'm not going to be on now I'm going to I'm going to turn on some other time when you're not on that doesn't happen and so the the, the problem is with renewables is that I you know the value in a wind farm or the value in a solar farm um, the thing that makes that a very good solar farm makes some other solar farm less good right and in particular competition for access to the market and access to transmission right so if you say what's the business case we're building uh, a solar farm out here, it's a very strong business case if I have a perfectly right-sized wire that connects me to the market, right? But if someone else joins that wire, maybe closer to the city um, or further out from it or something like that, then suddenly my business case is looking very, very different, right? And maybe it's hard to invest in that. The same thing happens on a different wire somewhere else, right? You know, someone else built another solar farm somewhere else and the market's prices that you're expecting to dispatch at will suddenly plunge down to zero. So it's actually extremely hard. And there would be an engineered optimal solution. Um, best case, like as in the best version of this we could do, but it's best done by basically um, central planning. It's saying like, where are the best sites? How much land? How much solar do we put at each site? And, and, and match the wire size to the size of the solar farms, the wind farms that connect to it, right? And get that to happen up front. You don't want to build a massive, massive wire and then find the projects for the market to fill it up with solar generators is a little bit slow or they're a bit hesitant or they didn't get the right subsidy level to, to have them all fill it in, right? You should just you should build the right wire and build the right amount of solar and the right it's amount of... It's going to end badly, isn't it? Well, no, I mean, it's as in, I if if you want to make that happen the most efficient way in terms of total system costs, you would have to centrally plan it. And there's two ways, or, you know, there's, there's two ways you can do that, right? Either you've got the very, very like the pro market way where you just say, build your own damn wire, right? You know, we're not going to build any new transmission. It's your problem to solve that. And you can build your own wire to get your whole system to the market. Integrating that, it'll become a vertically integrated transmission and generation and storage system, which means that that central three parts, you know, that you can sort of get the the, the three-legged race where everyone's trying to walk together. It can be done by one actor, right? They will do that much better themselves, right? So instead of one waiting for transmission, one waiting for the wire, one for the battery, Say, well, build the whole lot yourself, right? And uh, and make it private. Or the government could step in and say, piss off renewable energy investors, we're gonna build the lot. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, the government will now fund 
all the generators um, uh, that we're going to put on the end of these wires because we're building the wires. That's what enables it. That's that's what makes these things viable. Is the right size wire. Won't work without it. Yeah. So so wh why should we let you get this you know profitable bit from having the optimal amount of generation at the end of it when we've actually built all the enabling infrastructure? Why don't we just build the whole lot? Um, and that's the kind of left of politics, right of politics, very free market, very very pro government way of doing it. But it's going to be one of those. It'll be like if if you're asking me how would I do it, what's the best way of getting a very the leanest possible system to provide efficient renewables? You just take it over with the government. Yep. Yeah, you just take it over with the government. The whole lot of it, like the storage and the um, the storage, the transmission and the generators. Yep. You'd centrally you'd centrally plan it. You'd get all the experts together and you go right. We're going to buy everything and then we're going to build everything and there's no more market because it won't do what we want it to do. And I think that's. That would be the cheapest way to do it, but it'll still be bloody expensive. Exactly, exactly, right? But you ask the question, what's the best way of doing the thing that people are trying to do? I totally agree. It's it's a massive behemoth of a system. It's a it's a the, the popular term on Twitter at the moment um, that the nuclear advocates use is a is a Rube Goldberg machine, right? It's one of these kind of a cool comic uh, of kind of like the guy that has the most complex possible slow way of doing getting a right. simple outcome. Right? Yeah, there's sort of a, an automated. What I see, an autom automated napkin machine that has a ball that rolls, that tips a fork, that kind of goes up there, and then something else, and a and a bottle of milk falls over, and something slips, and, and eventually a little arm swings, and like it's 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 a massive, massive, elaborate, complicated machine to do a relatively simple thing, right? So, so Aiden, on I'm conscious of time, and you've been a great guest. You've been you've been you've uh, outlined some great ideas there. I'm going to. Uh, suggest that when you get into the the twitter space because it seems like you're not you're not afraid of uh dipping your toe in the water there and uh maybe even doing some research and and defending your arguments which is fantastic we need more of that when you when you criticize gen cost i think your your central planning uh concept there people and if you outline that what you'll find is that people go oh have you read the ISP, <laughs> which is an integrated system plan by the Australian Energy Market Operator by AMO? Now they use GenCost to um, support its conclusions, and that uh, AMO uh, a couple of years ago were given the power to kickstart transmission projects. And what you'll find is that the ISP is described as the least cost uh, or the least regret. Sorry, the least regret. Uh, way of getting to these high renewables targets. So I don't want to. I don't want to dive too much into that. But uh, I'll. I'll. Uh, I'll. Li I'll leave you with that thought. I'll leave you with that thought. And and I'm totally aware of it. And the ISP kind of least cost thing is again assuming this other baseline. And the other baseline they have for not advancing as much transmission is that we have to get to the same net zero target with um, extremely expensive, not transmitted things, i.e. like offshore wind which is, which is extremely expensive near the city so you can avoid transmission and carbon capture and sequestration which is a, a thermodynamic nonsense for you know thermal fossil fuel things to become you know uh low carbon um don't forget don't forget demand management the uh the ultimate white flag oh that, that's right so so their their baseline for that least cost thing is extreme i mean it's just you know that's 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 what we have to do look at look at the baseline people say this has got net value and or this is cheaper um what are they comparing it to? That's that's the simple question that everyone should ask when they when you hear these propositions that things have a net value or things cost this much. What's the baseline they're comparing to? And in all these cases, they're not comparing to a do-nothing baseline or a baseline where we just carry on with the current grid. They're comparing to some other crazy thing and they're not comparing it to, which is what I think, you know, is the comparison that is politically relevant. Why don't we just build nuclear um, plants at this at much the same places that we have coal, pl coal plants at the moment?
Um, and then how does that look? That hasn't been costed. And I think that's the thing that is of burning political importance at the moment, um, to have honestly costed as an alternative. Aidan, I uh, appreciate your insights. I think they're uh, very relevant and very balanced. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.